Okay, good afternoon and welcome to the Kennan Institute. My name is Will Pomerantz. I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute. And welcome to our talk on China's business in Central Asia, Power and Anxiety. Uh, this event is co-sponsored with the Kissinger Institute on China and the United States. Uh, before we, we turn the uh, proceedings over to our speaker, just a brief word about some upcoming events. On Friday, that's tomorrow, February 21st at 10 a.m., uh, we will have Sufyan Jamukov here, who will talk about a path through the mountains, Islam and nationalism in the Caucasus. On Tuesday, February 25th at 3.30, we'll have an event commemorating the 80th anniversary of the Katyn Massacre with Alexander Goryanov and Andrei Novak. And then on Friday, February 28th at 11 o'clock, we will have our own uh, fellow here, Igor Zevalev, who will be talking about Russian policies toward Russians in neighboring states. Well, today it is our great pleasure to have Dr. Gulberner Ajan here. She is a reader in international business and entrepreneurship at the Royal Holloway, at Royal Holloway University of London. Uh, her research deals with internationalization of firms, business politics, relations, and entrepreneurs' moral standing. Uh, she holds a PhD in economic geography at, from the London School of Economics and an MSc in city and regional planning from the Middle East Technical University in Ankara. She has received numerous awards, uh, including the Robert McNamara Fellowship of the World Bank, and most importantly, the Fellowship of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in 2008-2009. She is the author of Building States and Markets, Enterprise Development in Central Asia, and she has also conducted numerous interviews uh, in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and China in 2018 and 2019. And these form the basis of her remarks today. So, Gulberna, pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Thanks for the introduction and thanks for coming to this talk. Uh, it's wonderful to be back. I was a fellow 11 years ago. And years passed so quickly and it was uh, a great time here. I have fond memories. Uh, this is an evolving phenomenon and a new research that I have conducted, and I, it's a great pleasure to be able to share my initial findings. Uh, and I will welcome your questions and comments at the end of my talk, which will be about 20, 25 minutes. China is the new neighbor for many regions around the world, as well as nations not only in terms of its trade relations, but spe specifically in terms of exports and imports, supply chain integration, and in many other ways, China has an increasing effect and influence. During this talk, I will try to argue and convince you that Central Asia has a very specific place in this evolving phenomena, increasing power, increasing role of China uh, in different geographies. So the framework of, of my talk is uh, divided into six sections. I will talk about the evidence I gathered in the region during the spring of 2016. We'll mention about the uh, interviews I conducted, the, the data I have been able to gather, but also limitations of studying China's role in uh, the region. 
then I will talk about different aspects of diffusion that economic interests of China are being manifested in Central Asia. Then as a geographer, of course, I'm interested in how that affects different spatial uh, contexts in the region, the issue of debt trap, and reactions, reactions from business people, ordinary people, and other actors in the region. Then I will briefly question whether Central Asia will have a lasting developmental effect and what the scholars have looked at China's influence around the globe, especially uh, its much older and much faster penetrated role in Africa, which seems to be an interesting case for comparison, despite the fact that we know there are important differences. Then I will talk about insecurity, insecurity of the Central Asian governments and ruling elite, but not only that, insecurity of China in dealing with its growing economic and um, uh, politi political influence around the world. And I will make some conclusions. <coughs> Until recently, I did not study China. My work on Central Asia has been on enterprise development, transformation to capitalist markets, uh, looking at, in particular, the emerging entrepreneurial class in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. I have traveled extensively in the region, and I started working on these issues in early 2000, 2000s. And what brought me to Wilson Center was my work on capitalist markets, oligarchic markets in particular, uh, as a way of transformation from Soviet institutions to new neoliberal or authoritarian capitalism uh, we, we term. So here uh, I uh, present you a few publications I have done recently on Central Asia in relation to enterprise development and entrepreneurship in the region and their effects on national economies. So my evidence for this topic or this analysis comes from a uh, fieldwork study that I conducted during the spring of 2019 in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan with a travel grant uh, from the Kenan Institute. So I'm, <laughs> as always, grateful. Um, the fieldwork uh, was taking place not only in metropoles like Almaty, well, Nur Sultan, it was as Astana when I bought my ticket, um, Bishkek, uh, but also other less known regions, because I was interested in what the effect, what is the footprint of China in less, connect, less connected and remote, remote regions of uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. So therefore, I traveled to Batken, which is a southern most outpost towards west in the Kyrgyz Republic, which is a very poor region. I also went to Aktau, which is on the Caspian Sea. I have conducted interviews in Beijing, talking to uh, Academy of uh, Social Sciences, China Development Institute, and uh, Peking University. 
Admittedly, a number of these interviews were elite interviews. I talked to people who had certain privileges, like government officials, politicians, intellectuals. But I also talked to managers, business owners, NGOs, small contractors that worked for Chinese companies, local contractors, business owners, and activists. Activists in particular uh, in terms of uh, putting across uh, various forms of resistance to Chinese business expansion and influence in the region. And there are obviously, as in all fields of study, certain limitations. Uh, a, a significant limitation is the way in which Chinese organizations and businesses operate. They are very hierarchical. They are often elusive. They have a very light local footprint it's hard to have access to information. So if you go to Batgan trying to understand the impact of infrastructure, infrastructure investments, you probably would see no Chinese to talk to. You have to go to Beijing to find the managers and hierarchical, in the hierarchical order, perhaps um, party officials to have a better sense. Uh, there is also a degree of secrecy. Information is not widely shared. Uh, for as far as local informants and politicians are concerned, I will talk about this later, widespread corruption also makes these issues rather difficult to talk about. So this is an image from Lenin to Panda, uh, a transition. Um, I will not really talk about one road, one belt, because it's a very complex, very big phenomenon. But nevertheless, I would like to touch on that and explain why Central Asia has a critical role, play, um, role to play in the sustainability of OBOR, or BRI. So this is obviously a, a growing network of maritime uh, pipelines and railways connecting China with South and with West and ports and nations around the world. So why does China aim to build the, these infrastructures? It has a lot to do with its overcapacity, financial and industrial, as well as labor overcapacity to fuel its domestic growth, to secure access to trade routes, to secure access to uh, resources. So uh, to talk about the diffusing uh, business interests in the region, uh, I divided in a very simple manner the type of businesses now run, owned, and operated, owned partially or fully by Chinese um, corporations. The first well-known case is the investments in the field of in infrastructure and construction. So Chinese companies, typically China Road, is building uh, motorways, railways, and um, sometimes they do this themselves in-house by bringing Chinese workers and equipment. Sometimes they divide in small portions, subcontract them to other Chinese firms, and also to some local players. 
that's uh, the most visible effect of China in the region, and China hopes to build a better image of itself by improving the quality of these services and demonstrate to local people that China is bringing development. Another area which is very important is the way in which China has access to strategic resources that has to do with its needs for energy, oil, gas, but also equally important is mining. Mining extractive industries are rapidly expanding in the region, especially in Tajikistan, in Kazakhstan, in uh, Uzbekistan, but specifically in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. There are now numerous uh, Chinese firms operating. Their numbers are not even known by um, local politicians. A third area is the way in which Chinese companies are involved in urban services, like in uh, central heating, electricity supplies, and surveillance, which is an uh, evolving phenomenon uh, presented under the, the, the umbrella of smart cities. And then comes trade, logistics, and service sector enterprises. These enterprises often supply merchandise and services to other Chinese firms operating in the region. Finally, but also very importantly, there is a growing business, that's the business of protection. So there are now, although denied officially by region's governments, private security firms operated by, um, by Chinese um, enterprises. Just to have a quick, as I said, I'm not going to dwell on numbers, I'm not going to try to impress you with statistics, but just a quick look at the region. For those who are not familiar, this is Kyrgyzstan, this is Kazakhstan, this is Uzbekistan, double landlocked, this is Turkmenistan, and that's Tajikistan. So when I talk about Central Asia, I mean the five uh, post-Soviet republics in the region. This is Akta, where I did my field work. And Akta is an important port because China aims to reach the West and benefit from the access of the sea to other nations through this connection to Alaska. This is the Trans Railway Corridor. There's also a planned one. There is also another line, these two lines, gas pipelines and oil pipelines. These are certainly not new. China has been building these relations since the 1990s, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1997. It gained a new face with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, so in terms of military and political engagement with these uh, nations in the region, and certainly with the One Road, One Belt being declared in Kazakhstan by President Xi in 2013. So China's role in the region hasn't started suddenly just because of Obor, but it has been a culminating, evolving phenomenon. And these, these pipelines certainly uh, have started before um, uh, the uh, BRI. So 
what kind of business operations are taking place in these sectors and areas I have uh, already mentioned? Well, the well-known examples are obviously state-owned enterprises. These are very large firms, and they operate around the world, not only in Central Asia, they operate in Africa, in Southeast Asia, uh, typically China Road, uh, oil company CMPC. CMPC now has 50% uh, of Kazakh uh, oil. In fact, some of these shares are under the name of Western companies, perhaps, but they are also Chinese-owned. <coughs> so these are done, these companies enter the region through state-to-state -state deals. So the concept of peaceful coexistence would mean a peaceful coexistence between the elites. Uh, and through these personal ties, China usually uh, establishes long-term contracts. So, for example, in Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev signed many agreements with China, and according to one commentator I talked to in London, that everything is now sealed. It's done. The second level is state-sponsored private firms. I will give an example of that. These are uh, firms that operate uh, under the state, in relation to the state, but of course they have their own ways of doing things and they have a degree of freedom in their way of um, conducting their business operations. But they do have political ties and they do have links in bureaucracy. There are also small independent firms and contractors. These are Chinese firms that serve these above large firms, especially when there are smaller projects to undertake. They sometimes <coughs> use, use shell names. They are not obvious as Chinese investments. Um, and they have high mobility. They finish, they pack, and they go. They may go to another region, another country, very quickly. So that's uh, their flexibility and agility in terms of business operations. So the final group are the small uh, entrepreneurs, which obviously are more visible and perhaps uh, a, a more obvious reason why Central Asian societies are increasingly uncomfortable with growing Chinese influence, because these entrepreneurs are there with short-term businesses. Many of them also uh, marry to local women and Central Asian societies are concerned about the sustainability of their culture uh, and concerned about migration. And these vagabond uh, diaspora entrepreneurs seem to be also uh, another phenomenon in the region. Now I will um, argue why Kazakhstan in particular has a specific uh, position in China's access to the West. So this is from a study looking at financial and military diplomacy of China in South and Central Asia, a relatively recent study. And this is the financial diplomacy, i.e. in terms of financial deals China had with Kazakhstan. Remember, Kazakhstan is only 17 million people with, of course, vast earth resources. And this is what is in Pakistan. This is Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. By looking at this, uh, this figure, we can easily discern that Kazakhstan has a critical place in China's um, 
China's diplomacy. And not so surprisingly, since the 2008 financial crisis, China's role has, has uh, increased uh, rapidly. And that also corresponds with the military diplomacy in the region. So I give you a few uh, examples. There are many examples, uh, uh, but I just illustrated a few here to explain what's going on on the ground when I did my field work and talked to people and experts. Number one uh, issue in terms of um, operations is the expense of projects, that the projects are expensive and those uh, investments do not really yield uh, proper returns. And this is, sorry. Um, sorry, what's happening? Right, so this is a uh, central heating project in Bishkek, uh, which uh, was supposed to be upgraded uh, for uh, 368 million US dollars. It was riddled with corruption and poor technical skills, and in the middle of cold winter of 2018, it stopped working for, for a week. Uh, there was a recent fire, indeed, few uh, weeks before I was in Mangista, Aktai's in Mangista, and um, China, uh, the, the uh, Kazakh government threatened um, to take the license away from the Chinese company, but through some backdoor maneuvers and legal loops, the uh, Cebu Engineering Drilling Company paid only nineteen, uh, $1,997 for the damages they caused to environment. And that was, of course, ridiculed by people um, who were well aware of what was going on. There are other issues like infrastructure delays, expensive projects, corruption scandals, and slow progress in road building. There's a huge, actually, scandal around the light railway construction in Nur Sultan, which involves, obviously, uh, not so surprisingly, I should say, uh, the uh, president's family. So in terms of the geography of this impact, it is about uneven connectivity, that what we see on maps, uh, as if everything is perfect and connected, all is done, actually is not the case when you go to the region. Uh, Horgos is a dry port in the <coughs> Kazakh-Chinese border. There's nothing on the Kazakh border, and there's a lot on the Chinese border. There is this issue of dislocation and deterritorialization of certain activities. For example, ACTA seaport uh, special economic zone on paper looks wonderful, but when you go there, as, as I did, you basically see nothing. Nothing is happening. Dordo in Bishkek is being threatened by now new markets being opened by China to transport its, go its, its goods to to the West. So there is this kind of issue of dislocation of the former activities, former uh, economic zones with this new impact. There is also, in addition to social friction, there is a geographical friction that things don't move smoothly among these countries, despite the fact that this is presented as if it's one Silk Road and one zone. And there are exacerbated welfare effects that rural communities, certain regions are cut off they have been cut off before, and they are still so. So there are these growing um, 
disparities in terms of labor mobility and wage disparities. In fact, studies on wage disparities globally indicate that a degree of effect by China on the blue-collar workers' wages and growing disparity in the West, too, that as the production moves to uh, China and Chinese enterprises, there is the welfare cost, um, despite the fact that people have access to cheaper goods. So this is Akta, where I was. This is supposed to be a, a great uh, special economic zone. But as you see, I assure you, there is nothing going on. Um, reactions. Well, when you ask people, as I said, elites as well as uh, lay people, what they think about China's role, China's uh, impact in the region, there is a lot of anger. And this has reflected uh, on the number of protests in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan more so because of uh, the fact that it's a more liberal uh, country. And the concerns center around Chinese ownership of land and resources, labor migration, intermarriages, unequal pay. And these grievances have been uh, intensified since the internment camps in Xinjiang. Because many people, among the ones I have interviewed, they have relatives either in camps or they don't hear from them. So there is this sense of betrayal as the region's governments, especially the Kazakh government, has been quiet about the existence of the camps. And these are the few quotes I have here. I go very quickly. Sorry, I'm not doing well. Um, so the first one is about this issue of rapidity and flexibility of Chinese businesses, which in a region that lacked enterprises and free uh, businesses for a very long time is uh, obviously a, a, an advantage. There is a general sense that uh, China's benefits are low and it doesn't really trickle down to ordinary people. So there's no developmental effect that is noticed by, um, by citizens. There is also this concern that their elites, ruling elites, are selling their country out to China. And there are rumors that you know 10,000 Chinese businesses will be resettled or established to initiate uh, economic development in the region. And these are not met with joy, because they think that this is um, going to dilute their cultural and uh, economic independence. Uh, that trap is a, a growing and important phenomenon, not for only uh, Central Asia, but around the world, the way in which Chinese um, uh, businesses and the state enterprises uh, finance and give credit to countries here, Kyrgyzstan, after Djibouti, uh, Tajikistan, uh, are two Central Asian countries that have um, huge growing debt to China. So here, a, a typical statement that I have uh, copied states that they can't pay this back. This is done corruptly. And when it gets, when they have to pay, when the time comes, they have to give la their land to China. This is what they expect. And this is not a secret. You don't have to be a scholar to know this. Everybody knows it. So now I would like to move on to the development effect. This is actually on the airport bus uh, in Bishkek, and that's me. And the question is, 
what is the then development development effect of China? If China has managed to reach such a big big scale and scope in 40 years since it started liberalizing their economy, whether its involvement in the region as elsewhere perhaps would lead to a new form of economic development. And what has been said that China doesn't uh, give aid as the West does, it <coughs> often doesn't have conditions attached, that's perhaps a simplification because China does have a lot of conditions attached and they are often financial. They are more capitalist than the capitalist countries when it comes to dealing with their financing and aid projects. They don't typically give uh, for um, aid that the Western institutions do. But China bus China's business in, the in internationalization, i.e. acquiring companies, going to new geographies, uh, may lead to perhaps some spillover effects in the region. So that's something one has to question. But what seems to be the case that there are different institutional structures and different exchanges that takes place between the elites. The Chinese Communist Party faces authoritarian leaders in this region, and that's the level of exchange. There is not much underneath. There is not a horizontal structure that would take advantage of Chinese know-how or investments or, uh, or models like uh, um, special economic zones, the types that have been pursued uh, by China um, in special economic zones and etc. So is there then a geographical spillover? The way in which Japan influenced South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, whether those countries with their um, model of industrial policies, effective government, would become a model for Central Asia. So that's a question, whether there is a geographical spillover effect. Now that question uh, met by two different positions. Position one uh, is about the way in which Chinese businesses operate, and that is considered to be a form of colonialism. Looking at the cases in Africa, some scholars put forward the notion that this is uh, not a typical Western colonialism, it is more of a surgical colonialism because China does not necessarily want to be involved in all institutions with different conditions. It rather has these enclaves. So enclaves and um, surgical colonialism notions have been discussed in relation to Chinese expansion, uh, in, especially in Africa and uh, other regions. So these suggestions uh, would mean that China is not necessarily interested or involved in economic development issues. It only wants to have its interests being served, and those are contained around specific regions, specific projects. Now, mostly uh, uncritical Chinese scholars and others suggest that that's not true. China is involved in technology transfer, and it transfers relevant technology. As a former developing country, China understands better developing countries, and what it exports is a relevant one. And very little evidence being put forward that it promotes entrepreneurial learning. This study in particular looks at Kyrgyz traders and suggests that they learn something from their Chinese counterparts. 
That may be the case, but I guess uh, we need more scale, and at the moment there's no evidence that there is such a scale effect of um, spillover. Um, and some scholars uh, also suggested that this growing China anxiety around the world uh, is a Western-made um, um, sentiment. It's promoted by Western uh, institutions because their domination is being challenged by uh, China's arrival. And a final uh, position by hardliners is that there is a, a greater China wherever there is uh, an, an influence of Chinese diaspora, and that's a natural region of influence for China. I will talk about that in a bit. Almost done, thank you. So there is this issue of insecurity as well, insecurity among the region's elites in Central Asia, but I also argue that uh, there is also insecurity um, on the side of China. Um, so President Xi is now a lifetime leader, the Communist Party wants to remain in power uh, firmly. It, uh, it is uh, not open to any criticism. Um, and there is a constant fear of disintegration and the, the need to control the society. Um, and to maintain this uh, regime stability, they also need to consolidate the neighborhood and energy and trade routes. And in addition to Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which has been conducting military operations under the guise of Russia, which is no longer an economic player in the region, but wants to remain a strategic partner and player, China's influence is, is growing. But as I said before, there is now also a new phenomenon of private security companies operating in the region, and that is interesting to watch in coming years when tension uh, um, increases. So, um, it all comes down to Xinjiang. Pakistan corridor is through Xinjiang. Opening to the west through Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan is through Xinjiang. So, jailing up people because they have had scarves or beards or they are likely to be terrorists is an excuse to get rid of Xinjiang, flatten the region so that China has easy access <coughs> to the West in terms of all these uh, routes for the uh, one road, one belt, if short, access to resources and markets. In conclusion, there's no doubt that China brings opportunities. It can uh, help this region with infrastructure and industrial investments, but that is not happening, mm -hmm. partly because the region's elites are not really negotiating well, uh, and China is not willing to give in, wants to impose <laughs> its choices because of the fragmented position of the region's governments. So that brings new dependencies. And we find China at the intersection of a new global hegemon hegemonic competition. But uh, at the moment, Western interests like the United States or the European Union really don't have much to offer. Does China have a model to replicate? That's a different discussion. Maybe we can look at during the question and answer. Uh, but China is definitely trying to create a parallel regime of governance in the world for itself aligned with other authoritarian 
leadership as we see in some of the UN resolutions these days. So that's, that would mean an alternative new world order or emerging order or disorder, depends how you look at it. Um, and within that, we see this issue of trajectory, whether China will become a, a credible soft power. It is trying with Confucius Institutes, exchange students and language education taking place with Central Asia. There is that growing attempt. But also China is a power that has huge insecurities about itself. And I think Xinjiang and coronavirus more recently demonstrate that insecurity. Domestic political liabilities are very important for Central Asia. Ruling governments are increasingly getting more and more detached from the sentiments of local people, and local people really think that their rulers uh, are giving away to China behind the closed doors without any accountability and transparency. So there are rumors. Some of them may be not true, but secrecy creates also these kind of um, feelings. My final uh, word is that although it is a pompous and big project, uh, one road, one belt, and other political projects that China pursues might end up with a huge financial bankruptcy because they are more political than anything else. I think I'll stop here. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gilberna. Um, I want to start with the first question, and, and it, it kind of follows on to your conclusion. Um, and that is, you said at the beginning that the goal is to have a better image of China after all these projects. So in view of all the problems that you have described, um, is, is, is this a bad PR campaign? Mm. I mean, the, the, the whole investment that it's not necessarily a sustainable model, that clearly it's, uh, it's promoting corruption, um, insecurity, uh, the perception of elites just being bought off. Um, at what point is this, being, is this perceived as not, not, not only not enhancing China's image, but simply a bad investment? Yes, there are those in China who think that uh, investing in the region uh, is not viable and economically viable, and it's a waste of money, yes. Th there is that kind of view, but they can't obviously express these openly because it's, again, a political decision um, taken by the president. But at the same time, let's not underestimate, with its soft and hardware investments, China has already locked the region. Mm -hmm. Yeah, railways, uh, um, technology, roads, and everything. So they do take a, a, a longer-term approach. And I think they have ability to sustain all these local tensions and, and uh, demonstrations and clashes. They have patience. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's open the floor for questions. Right in front here. We'll get, we'll get, you, we'll get you a microphone. Hold on a second. We're going to give you a microphone right okay. here. I'm Lisa Lotte-Otgaard from Hudson Institute. Um, you didn't mention much about Russia in your mm. talk, and I think yes. that would be the obvious question. What is Russia's response to China's entrance? Because that could determine whether China is successful or not, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thanks. 
Good question. Yes, I didn't deliberately. Uh, China uh, wants to be a military and strategic power, but it is aware of the fact that it has no economic muscle. So, and China understands that and acts accordingly. China is extremely careful not to offend Russia in the region. I mean, all Chinese Central Asia experts speak Russian, and they continue to speak Russian and dialogue with Russia. So, however, in my view, that is not a durable balance. Soon, I think Russia will realize that its strategic role in the region will not remain as, as it has been over the very long period. What will happen then is an interesting question. Will Russia use region's governments to create resistance towards China, maybe support some opposition groups, pro-Russia opposition groups, because there is now saying that, you know, against China, we rather prefer Russia kind of sentiment. So that is also a benefit that Russia seems to be getting out of this complex relationship. Mm -hmm. Right over here, the center. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for your presentation. My name is Henry. I'm with Asian Development Bank. My question is more regarding on the domestic sector of the Central Asian countries. As we have seen, the uh, rising, rising Islamic extremist groups are becoming more and more active in this area. How much influence would that actually have on the Chinese involvement in Central Asia, particularly in the economic sector? Thank you. Yes, there are radical Islamic groups in Central Asia, and as you know, with the Syrian uh, uh, um, disintegration, some of them even went there, but the numbers are not as big as it's exaggerated and exploited by China to justify their repression. Uh, similarly, the region's governments are using that excuse to suppress their own people uh, and block accountability and transparency, and they don't really uh, um, follow the rule of law. Uh, so that is a cover they use to disguise their corrupt systems. Right here. Hi, thank you. My name is Brandon from FAO Global. We're an international market consulting firm, and um, we've been exploring a lot of uh, opportunities in the region and most recently Mongolia, and as you're talking, we're seeing a lot of the same things going on. But um, specific to uh, Central Asia, how has Chinese investment influenced the overall either ease of doing business or business environment for uh, firms that are not from China? Um, has that, do you see that landscape shifting at all? Thank you. Mm. Good question. I have looked at this uh, uh, business perception surveys for a long time because I'm interested in how entrepreneurs operate in these highly um, um, risky environments. Um, I, as far as I have gathered during my field work, um, that really didn't change much in terms of the, the how licenses are uh, being processed how fines are being given, and what the government officials and bureaucracy deal with these things. The problem with Central Asia is that they have not really developed a good bureaucracy to, to sustain their government. So the current rulers, many of them, Uzbekistan had the regime change, but um, 
Karimov in particular, and Turkmenistan, as you, many of you will be aware, and Nazarbayev have really not invested in creating their state legitimacy with a good bureaucracy. So they wasted years. I don't think the, the situation has changed for Western investors, but I have gathered the sense that Chinese firms have now figured out how to deal with that bureaucracy, go around it, uh, use all channels of corruption because they don't have stakeholders to, to tell their story or to give a, a, an account. For example, a large Western firm, however they may be problematic in terms of their business dealings, they have stakeholders. So that's why they can't operate in, in these uh, geographies. They retrieve and instead they subcontract their operations to those who can play the game as uh, fiercely as anybody else. Hi, Jacob Dwyer with National Democratic Institute. Uh, once again, thank you very much for this presentation. It was really interesting. Uh, my question is kind of the opposite of what William was asking. I'm interested in basically from the 60 interviews that you conducted, what the perception of uh, Kazakh and Kyrgyz people is towards China, whether that is changing in any way, um, given that there is increased interaction with Chinese companies, uh, there are employment opportunities with Chinese companies, infrastructure projects that are happening locally. Um, do you see a change happening kind of in the soft power region towards um, creating more influence of Chinese culture upon the region? Yes, and there are uh, a good number of students, few thousand, studying in China, learning Mandarin. Um, there are Confucius Institutes, there are uh, 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 university departments financed and um, libraries uh, donated by uh, Chinese government. So there is definitely an attempt to create um, a soft power position. And certainly it has audiences. It does receive and it does have... Um, um, impact. Um, but what I gathered is that there is a very deep-seated uh, um, um, psyche among people that China is foreign. They are not part of their culture, uh, linguistically, religiously, or in, uh, in, in any other way they don't share. So there is also uh, a mistrust that uh, Chinese are there to take over their land, and in fact, this discourse of greater China and diaspora entrepreneurship would mean that um, Chinese migration can easily change the demographics of the region. So they see China as a threat for their cult cultural sustainability and uh, survival. So a, a neighborly uh, region that they have territorial continuity and certainly Xinjiang and Central Asia are culturally the same zone, but perhaps because of Chi Xinjiang's recent experience, but also older myths, nation national myths of Kyrgyz and Kazakh talk a lot about their clashes, their uh, suffering uh, um, at the hand of Chinese. So there is that kind of background that is, uh, I guess, a, a factor in this relationship. In the back. Uh, Michael Corbin, U.S. Department of Commerce. I'm in their Office of Finance and Insurance Industries. And very curious, it seems like the, um, the investment from the Chinese in Central Asia is 
please let me know. It seems like it's having an undermining or adverse effect for the development of um, capital markets within Central Asia because the Chinese are providing the money rather than allowing uh, domestic pension funds or insurance companies or so forth to develop the to need to invest in types of infrastructure. It seems like the Chinese are doing that. Could you comment on any um, adverse effects that the Chinese investment would have on the development of capital markets in the region? Um, I haven't done um, an extensive analysis on capital markets per se, but I think that is um, associated with um, underdeveloped business climate um, and poor management. Now, Kazakhstan has tried to do it. They had actually good means and opportunities to succeed, but something happened in, in Nazarbayev's path that he stayed too long in power and was involved in too many corrupt dealings with his family that somehow what seemed to be quite positive and emerging collapsed. And now I don't think there is uh, any indigenous uh, or any local financial market emerging unless maybe 10 to 20 years from now that things change. But imminently, uh, at present time, it's unlikely. Right here. Hello, I'm Rachel Vandenbrink at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Thank you for your presentation. Um, Belt and Road has, of course, been evolving since it was introduced in 2013. Uh, for example, at the last Belt and Road Forum, China uh, announced some new pledges for um, greener Belt and Road standards. Um, I'm wondering if in your research you've seen any uh, evidence of business practices in Central Asia changing in response to some of the negative reactions that you mentioned. Uh, I haven't yet. Maybe it will. Uh, but what is interesting about Chinese business operations and management literature is full of, uh, as a management scholar, I can assure you, uh, full of articles looking at Chinese business and uh, organizational management issues. It, it has no single model but flexibility. So when a Chinese business uh, operates in the UK, they adopt the conditions of the UK and they uh, follow the rules and they have, uh, they serve that kind of sophistication and need of a, a market that the UK is. But uh, when they operate in Central Asia, they care less because things are not um, forced upon them. There are no strong requirements. I think it's all to do with the regions, people, and governments. At the moment, there is, seems to be a big gap between what governments are doing um, and what people are desiring. Over here. And then we're going to take a, one question. Let's take two questions here, and then we'll let Govern answer. Okay. okay. Uh, Mohammed Tahir from Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. Um, uh, Ms. Ms. Uh, 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 Ozenius also spoke about the, uh, the China increasingly working with security firms in Central Asia. What type of security firms are they? What they do? And also, there is at least rumored information that China has built some military bases in parts of Tajikistan. Is this a kind of a developing phenomena, what the Chinese thinkings are about the kind of a security aspect of their advancement in Central Asia? Thank now you. we'll take a second question right here. 
Uh, my name is uh, Vương Hung Chen. I am a residential fellow this year uh, at the Wilson Center. Uh, thank you for your presentation. It's very interesting. Um, so um, this actually follows up the uh, Russian question. Um, Central Asia has been and once again become the strategic site of great power competition. And uh, I'd like to uh, hear your uh, observation and insight on the role of uh, uh, Turkey uh, in this area, uh, especially given you know similar culture, religion, linguistic, as well as uh, complicated uh, history. Mm -hmm. Security in Turkey. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I have seen uh, reports and uh, local people have talked about uh, private security firms uh, and military uh, in Tajikistan operating. I haven't done a fieldwork analysis myself, so I can't really say anything. But in terms of these private security firms, I trace that a former um, People's uh, Army general has now established a firm with, of course, the approval of the Communist Party to preside over these services. And surprisingly, some of the Western companies are also bidding to take advantage of this growing market. So my guess is this is a response to growing uh, protests and reaction from the local people against the uh, mining sites, uh, some uh, industrial sites, and now they would like to cordon those places, that's my guess, and protect them because they know that central governments find it perhaps um, difficult. Either they don't have means or they don't have will. Uh, but that's a big problem because I think with a new law, China allowed those personnel, I think 2010 or so, since 2010, carry guns. Previously, no one in, in such organizations would, be, would, would have had that uh, right, but they, now they do. The funny thing is regions, governments are denying it, but all other indicators show that, yes, these, these uh, groups are operating and they have training and the, the, the offshoots of these uh, organizations are linked to at least one that I traced, linked to uh, a former army personnel who set up this business. Mm -hmm. And Turkey. Turkey, yes. Well, when I first went to Central Asia, there was this euphoria between Turkey and Central Asia, uh, but that didn't last very long because, uh, <laughs> partly because of geography, partly because of the influence of Russia in the region, and, and at the time, Turkey's naivety about the realities of the region. Um, now the relations, I think, are more realistic, um, and uh, Turkey and Russia uh, are not always in harmony in their international relations, and at the moment, obviously, there are issues that dis they disagree. And uh, by and large, uh, my feeling is that, apart from Turkish businesses and other cultural activities, uh, geopolitically, Turkey withdrew from the region. Um, but uh, when this government goes and the president changes, the situation might be different. At the moment, it has concentrated its efforts on various uh, uh, unfinished wars uh, in the Middle East. Okay. Any more hands? So we'll take these two questions and... We'll finish up then. So right here and then in the back. Thank you. 
uh, Michael Caulfield, Department of Commerce. Thank you for your presentation. I'm curious if you've seen any attempts by China at media influence in Central Asia, either affirmatively or through suppression. The Russian market, I think, is somewhat built in, of course. But um, and if you haven't, I'm curious if you could offer a theory as to why why not. Mm. The last question in the back. Yeah. Hello, my name is Katya Kuleshova. I'm a novelist. So my question is about uh, the Silk Road. I read this book by Peter Frankopan. He is uh, an Oxford historian. I and he mm. argues mm. right, that the center of global power is shifting from the west to the east and uh, that um, gradually the Silk Road will be rebuilt. So in light of this, uh, do you see, how do you see strategic priorities of China behind the Belt and Road Initiative? If we look like 50 years ahead or 100 years ahead, and you said that, that the Ch Chinese patient, um, what do you think is the perfect scenario for China in the long term? Mm. Thank you. Right. Shall I answer? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, about the press, uh, I must say I have not done any systematic research, but Mr. Tahrir is here. He, he is an expert on this topic. He can talk a lot more. But I did come across local newspapers in, in Chinese, Mandarin, and uh, Russian and Kyrgyz being distributed freely. And I think that is an interesting sign. And I did, I didn't present here, but I did review what they have been published. So for example, very positive views of China. Uh, for example, in the UK, the best food everybody likes is Chinese food. Um, uh, positive things, basically, you know. Um, it, it was like Turkmenistan. When there was uh, this uh, crisis in, in Uzbekistan next door, the Turkmen television was showing dancing girls, right? So that's a kind of all authoritarian regime's uh, uh, simple rule, that everything is wonderful in China, everything is wonderful between China and Kyrgyzstan, and West is terrible. Not that I'm suggesting they are wonderful, but that's the kind of... Um, by bifurcate polarized polarized perception that we are good we are doing good everything is nice but the others are nasty bad they are mean but so i observed that particular instance when i interviewed and 50 years hence yeah the future i won't be alive <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but we'll record your observations anyway. So, uh, Please do. <laughs> so you can be proven right. Um, yeah, I think Central Asia doesn't have markets, so it has small population. Uh, and it is a region that China wants <coughs> to uh, go through. So therefore, China, for China, Central Asia will remain very important as a transit place but also as a place where they can obtain their um, uh, economic resource, energy resources. So for a foreseeable future, I see a diminishing Russia and, uh, and, and increasingly more, more effective perhaps, but more assertive China in Central Asia. I would be also concerned that China may move millions of people to Xinjiang to repopulate the region and do and get engaged in social engineering further in Kazakhstan. And that is not so unlikely. Well, uh, 
thank you so much, Gulberna. Uh, a, a fascinating talk, and very, very pleased how 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 your interviews uh, sponsored by the Kennan Institute have produced such fascinating thank you. research. I want more. Uh, very good. <laughs> thank thank you, and thank you for coming.